So what do you guys think I'm going to start with? TV show. Here we go. You ready? Okay. <laughs> Seinfeld, right? I think it's no secret that I like Seinfeld. Um, I think the only shocker is I don't have a Seinfeld tattoo yet. Yet. Now, we have the Kramer painting hanging in our living room, you know. I always forget it's there until somebody new comes over and goes, oh, is that a family member? And then I go, oh, no, that's Kramer, you know, from Seinfeld. Um, one of the things that Seinfeld did better than anybody else, and it's really Larry David, I think, that was the brains behind Seinfeld, but the two of them together. One of the things they did better than anybody else was kind of taking two storylines. So, like, the way TV used to work was you'd have a sitcom like Friends or something, and there'd be two or three storylines going on during the show. And what Seinfeld would do is they would take all of those storylines at the end of the show and they would weave them together in a way that nobody had ever really done before and kind of makes the show brilliant. So one example is there's an episode. I don't even know why I wrote notes for this. Like, I've not seen this episode, right? Um, there's an episode. I thought about showing the clip, but I don't want to be that guy that shows Seinfeld clips doing the sermon, you know, like the, hey, look how cool I'm pastor I am. Kind of cheesy. But anyway, there's an episode where George is trying to impress this girl. And so he tells her he's a marine biologist, um, but he's not a marine biologist. Okay, He doesn't know anything about it. At the same time, Kramer takes up golfing, and he's practicing, and he's hitting golf balls into the ocean. He goes out to the beach, he sets his tee up, and he smacks them into the ocean. And so we have these two storylines, Kramer learning to play golf, George trying to impress this girl. <laughs> well, anyway, one of the days, George is walking on the beach, and th so... The scene is George telling this story to the four of them, like what happened, because they didn't want to film him on the beach. So George is walking on the beach, and there's like a beached whale kind of half in the shallow water. And everybody goes, like, is there a doctor on the plane, you know, on the beach? Is there a marine biologist here? The thing he's pretending he's lying about being, right? So he's, he's bold, and he'll take the lie all the way. So he pretends to be a marine biologist. He tells the story. He goes out, and, you know, the... <laughs> At one point, he says, the giant fish was whatever, and they go, mammal. He's like, yeah, whatever, you know. And he goes out, and he climbs up on the whale, and he sees the whale is not breathing. So he sticks his hand in the blowhole, and he pulls out, and he holds up to his friends. It's a golf ball. <laughs> right? So, the, like, there was the two storylines. Right? And they do this in almost every episode, where you, you watch Seinfeld, and you're like, how, is, how are they going to weave these two random storylines these two storylines together, like the rye bread. Or, okay, I could talk about Seinfeld all day. Um, so that's what they do. It's pretty cool. But as cool as it is, that's just a TV show written by Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld and other writers, you know. They can write whatever they want. What's even cooler is what God does because he does the same thing, but instead of TV shows, God does this in real life. And he doesn't just weave together a couple of storylines over a 22-minute time span. He weaves together all kinds of storylines over thousands and thousands of years. And it's really amazing how God is in control of history like this. And in theology and biblical studies and everything, we call this typology. And what that means is that God weaves together history in a way, it's really amazing. He takes the, like there'll be in the Old Testament or something, there'll be a small version of something that the more you know about this, that when the big version comes along, you'll understand it a lot better. It's like, the, what's the best, do you know the best-selling car in America every year? No? 
Nope. Fisher Price with the yellow top. You know, they sell more of those than any other car every year. Okay, now what's cool about those is if you played with one of those when you were a kid, any kind of toy car, when you grow up like Dennis and you go take your driving test, now <laughs> he just passed his driving test. Uh, when you grow up and take your driving stuff, was that a secret? Did I just rat you out in front of the whole church? Yeah. <laughs> and you go and you take your driving test. You know what a car is because you spent your whole childhood in one of those Fisher Price. You know what a steering wheel does. You know, it's, it, it gives you sort of a small version of, um, of the big thing. Uh, and so, or it's like, uh, you know, kids that play house when they're a kid. You know, like our girls are really into the mom game, you know, right? Like they tell you, one's the mom and one, they're like practicing for someday. But that's like the little version of someday, you know, hopefully they'll be real moms and they'll have kids and we'll have grandkids and we'll be old and... Boy, that's coming faster than we thought, right? It's already five. Anyway, it teaches you about the, the big version of the thing, right? And so what I want to do today with this text is I want to look at this text through that lens. So first, we want to get a good grasp of what the text actually says. This is kind of one of those texts, though, that's sort of almost in between the important stuff. You know, as you read through, you're like, ah, this is not that important. I got to get to the juicy stuff. But I think if you take the text and specifically of the idea of Passover is what we're going to talk about today, and you put that in the pattern of how did God use this holiday to teach his people about what Jesus would do through the whole storyline of Scripture, this text becomes pretty cool. All right, so follow along. We're in uh, Luke 22. I hate it does that, by the way, the, the app. For some reason, at the first verse, it numbers it the chapter. Do you see that? It should say 22.1. It should say 1 there, but anyway, i got to fix that. Um, all right, verse 1. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. So you got to remember Luke, first off, is writing to a pretty much Gentile audience. So whenever Luke comes across something that's uh, like with Jewish culture, he usually explains it to these Gentiles, right? And so there's a couple of Jewish feasts, you know, in Leviticus 23 and a bunch of other spots in the Old Testament. There's a handful of feasts that God gave the people, feasts and holidays and festivals that they're supposed to celebrate. I mean, it's actually pretty cool. It's a cool reminder. Or it's, it's cool that the Lord did this, right? He didn't just throw a bunch of rules at his people and say, follow these or else. Right? He gave them a bunch of parties that they have to have or else. Right? Think about that, though. What does that tell you about people? That you have to almost force them to party and to celebrate and to take a Sabbath is people aren't very good at this stuff, and God knew that. And so he gave them these festivals. It's the reminder to be thankful, the reminder to take a break and to take care of yourself and to celebrate and have fun with your friends and your family and, and to worship. And so what he did was he took these festivals and these holidays and he spread them out throughout the year, uh, almost as a gift, like a gift to the people. Um, there's a guy, he, uh, you know the organization Jews for Jesus? So the founder of Jews for Jesus was a guy named Moish Rosen, and uh, his wife was Seal. Um, and uh, they were pretty cool. They, I met them pretty late in their lives and pretty early in mine. They went to my church growing up for a little while. Um, anyway, they wrote a book together called Christ in the Passover. I'm going to read this to you. Um, talking about Passover, right, as this important meal. He commanded the annual reenactment of that Passover night, a ceremony that would appeal to the senses. Even as we teach children today through object lessons, 
Jehovah used everyday acts of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching to teach his truths, his holy truths to his people. You see, that's what he did. Like at Passover, we'll talk about this later, but you, you took bread and, you know, there was a lamb. Like there was, it was something you could, you know, you ever walk in a room and like, mm, that smells good, right? Passover has a smell, right? It's supposed to have a smell. Passover sounds like something. Passover involves family, right? It's very tactile, the whole thing, right? And so this is what they're doing here. They're celebrating the Passover, but they're also celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, again, there's a whole bunch of these feasts. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was one of the festivals from Deuteronomy. Um, it wasn't actually one of the festivals where you had to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. There were, three, there were three of those, but most people did anyway because this festival basically happened at the same time as Passover. And so, right, originally they were separate holidays further apart, but they kind of got jumbled together. So at certain parts of the New Testament, you'll see like, oh, it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or it's Passover, or they kind of use those almost interchangeably. And so out of the three big feasts that you're supposed, out of all the feasts, right, there's three biggies. There's Passover, Unleavened Bread. Uh, there's, um, wait, the Feast of Booths, and then there's Pentecost are kind of the three big ones for the people of God. All right, verse 2. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. So again, we've been in this section where Jesus is in Jerusalem and he's arguing and he's debating with these, these leaders, these chief priests, which are like the guys in charge of the temple, and the scribes are like the lawyers. And this is a kind of shorthand for the Sanhedrin, right? The guys who are in charge of the whole country. And the more popular Jesus gets, uh, the more upset these guys. So they had their big, sh- the, the more upset they get. So they had their big showdown in the temple, right? The theological rap battle where Jesus ran circles around him. Oh yeah, well, how is David the son, the Christ's son? You know, that whole thing, right? Um, and so then after that though, Jesus warns the crowd. So first he beats them theologically in front of everybody to where they couldn't even answer him anymore. And then he turns to the crowd and he goes, don't be like these guys. So you can imagine they're pretty upset. This enraged them to the point where they want to kill Jesus. Now, think about how mad you have to be to want to actually take somebody's life. Right? That's the level here. I've been pretty mad before, but I've never even come close to almost, eh, brothers, I guess. We hit each other with a lot of baseball bats. That could have gone south, you know. Uh, but I've never really been mad enough to actually want to kill somebody. You know, even if there's somebody you don't agree with, with politics or, I don't know, something like that you think is really important, I don't think most of us would get to the point where boy, I wish I could shoot that guy in the face. You know, that's how these guys are very upset. And the verdict has already been decided. There's no, hey, we should try to arrest Jesus and then, I don't know, put him on trial and see what the facts say. Right? That's not what's happening here. This whole thing is going to be a sham. And this is key, right? It'll tell us a lot about the trial. But they don't do it yet because they're afraid of the people. Now, remember what the Romans want from the Jewish people at this time. What's the main thing the Romans want? Submission, peace. They don't want them to mess around. They don't want any hint of an uprising. They want, pay your taxes and be quiet about it. That's what the Romans want from all of the vassal states. And so this is actually the tactic they're going to use to get Jesus killed, is to say he's, you know, to, the, to Pilate, he's riling up the crowds. He's saying he's the king. And so they can't do this now because they know this will start a whole thing and Jesus is very popular. And this could get them in trouble. So they're trying to figure out a way. They want their cake. They want to kill Jesus, but they also don't want to start an uprising. And they're trying to figure it out. So 
They looking for a way to get to him away from the crowd. And they find it here. Then Satan entered into Judas, who's called Iscariot, who was one of the um, one of the number of the twelve. So Judas, we're going to talk a little bit about him. Um, what do we know about Judas, really? Judas Iscariot, besides that that's what you call somebody who becomes a Dodgers fan. Right? Um, well, we know he was one of the 12 special disciples, right? So Jesus had 70-something, like, bigger group of disciples, 12 special ones, and then three, like, super special, right? So Judas was one of the 12. We know he was the group's treasurer, because at one point, John, in his gospel, tells us Judas was um, stealing all the money. Uh, and we know he's always mentioned last in every list of the disciples. It's like, you know, here's Peter and John, and they go through the whole list, and Judas, who betrayed him. They always put that in there, right? Like, he was one of the 12. He was one of the privileged 12. And so think about what that means. Think about what he has seen up to this point in the last three years of his discipleship training. Right? He sat for three and a half years listening to everything that Jesus said, listening to the master teach. He lived with Jesus, right? Remember, the, the disciple-rabbi relationship was not like the way we teach, where you show up for an hour, somebody teaches, then you go home. It was like you live with the person. And so he got to see Jesus up close, the humility, the power, the wisdom. He got to see Jesus love people. And what, you know, when you spend a lot of time with somebody and you start to get a better picture of who they really are, this happens especially when you're married, you know? Like, nobody knows each other like spouses do, right? This is kind of like what Ju Judas knew Jesus that well. They lived together for three years. They went around, they traveled around. Even more if you travel with somebody. You know, I saw a tweet once. It was like, imagine going on your honeymoon and then coming home or something, and your, your new spouse claps when the plane lands. And you're like, what have I done? <laughs> right? So when you, you, know, you spend time with somebody, you get to know him. So this is Judas. He's gotten to know Jesus. But he got to see Jesus do some things. One time, Jesus was walking into town, and there was a funeral procession. And Jesus walked over to the dead body, being carried out on a plank, and he was like, hey, dude, get up. And the guy, like, sat up. Everybody went, what? You remember that? The widow's son at Nain? He did the same thing with Lazarus. This had just happened, like, right before Jesus comes into Jerusalem, like, this month. It's crazy. He walked up to a dead guy's tomb and said, hey, man, get up. And the guy walks out. What's going on? Why, why am I all wrapped up? He saw Jesus cast out demons. He saw Jesus walk up to a guy with, whose legs don't work and pick him up and say, now walk away, and the guy walks away. He saw Jesus walk up to a blind guy. This is my favorite miracle. Spit in the dirt. Take the mud from the spit and smack it on his face, and then the guy could see. It's amazing. He saw that. He got to see. I feel like if I saw one of those things up close, you know, isn't that what we're all thinking? Like, this stuff is amazing. Think about what else Judas did. He passed out the food at the 5,000. He sat there. Where is all this bread and fish taste coming from? And then he walked away with a basket full of food. At one point, Judas was one of the disciples who was sent out to preach and to teach and to heal people and to cast out demons. Judas went up to some guy and was like, hey, blind guy, you can see now. And then the guy was like, hey, look, I can see. Judas did that. Judas sat down and he taught people about the kingdom of God. There is somebody who became a believer during that time when Judas was preaching. He was one of the inner twelve, and he threw it all away. 
Now, why did he throw it away? Satan entered Judas into Judas called Iscariot. Now, remember, I don't like the phrase demonic possession exactly, because it's not like super biblical. I like to talk about demonic oppression, right, where demons can influence and oppress people, but there's always some of that person left in there. And here's the thing. This verse doesn't get Judas off the hook even a little bit for a couple reasons. One, because Jesus said so later on. He talks about Judas. But two, Peter talks about, I'm sorry, not Peter, James talks about in his book, right? Uh, let's see, I wrote it. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The people of God are called to resist the devil when he shows up, not invite him in for tea and crumpets. And that's what Judas did. He invited the devil, like somehow. We don't know exactly how this works. And so now working in tandem together, Judas, who is probably greedy for money, the devil who thought he could destroy the plans of Jesus by having him killed, they're working together in verse 4. So he went, away, he went away and he conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him. So he goes to the temple police, the officers, something like the secret service at the White House. Hey, I need to talk to the, the Sanhedrin guys. And Luke's language is very clear. He uses the word betray. He doesn't mince words. Judas is going to betray Jesus. Uh, Luke 9.44 says this. Remember this? Jesus was talking. He said, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. As in like handed over. Like the UPS guy delivers packages, sometimes to your house, sometimes to three or four blocks away, but similar number to your house. But just like that, right? Judas hands Jesus over to the baddies, right? On purpose, with full knowledge of what he's doing. And they were glad, and they agreed to give him money. Think about the depravity of that. Jesus was the most pure, most loving, most humble person in all of history. He was awesome. And if you were around, everybody that was around him and spent serious time with him loved him. You know, he was very popular for a reason. He was the sinless son of God, perfect in every way. And then they, these guys have a chance to brutally murder that person, and they're excited about it. They're glad. Not they sort of, well, you know, like you've seen a movie where, I don't know, somebody has a hard choice to make and does the wrong thing and feels bad about it. This is not that. This is they feel excited and they're happy. It's almost unbelievable. Um, and the reason Judas does what he does is for money. That's probably, we're never actually, there's no verse that says Judas did this because of the money. But most of the Gospels talk about the money, the 30 pieces of silver, right? And the reason they talk about it is because that was probably his motivation. Most likely what happened was he was following Jesus, thinking that he was going to strike it rich. He'd become the king. I'll be important. I'll be loaded. I'll have a lot of money. I'll have a lot of power. And then when he realized what kind of king Jesus was going to be, he said to himself, well, if I can't have the power, I might as well have the money. And 30 pieces of silver was a lot of money, right? That's a lifetime's worth of money for him. So he turns them in. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray them in the absence of the crowd. So they had to find the right time. Now, what we're going to do real quick, we're going to jump out of order. The next part of Luke describes Jesus sending, and we'll get to this in just a sec, sending the disciples to prepare the Passover and stuff. But we're going to jump to when they're actually eating the Passover just to talk about Judas real quick. Watch this. Um, verse 21. Uh, sorry, this is from John's gospel, John 13. And after these things, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. 
So Jesus is troubled by what Judas is going to do. Remember, Jesus was a human being with emotions and feelings, and this is one of his best friends. And he is massively bummed out because he knows what's going to happen. So he tells the disciples, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at each other, one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Okay, this is important. Jesus goes, one of the 12 of you is going to betray me to the chief priests. And nobody goes, I bet it's Judas. Nobody thought it. They had no idea who it was. Some of them, is it me? Not me, right? That's what they're asking. This, what this tells us is that people are, we're very good at hiding our sin, aren't we? We're very good at pretending to be something we're not. Judas was one of the best at it of all time. Verse 23, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, that's John, was reclining at the table by, at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask, of Jesus, to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that that disciple, leaning back to Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why Jesus said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy whatever you need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. So the story is, Jesus basically says, we're not going to get into all the details of what was going on, but there was part of the ceremony was you would dip a piece of bread and you would hand it to somebody. And Jesus did that. And he hands that bread to Judas after saying, you know, the guy I give the bread to, that's the one who's going to betray me. And he turns to Judas, get this over with, man. And so Judas gets up and he leaves and he goes and he takes off to betray Jesus. All right, so that's some of the details from John's gospel about Judas. Now, we're not, I don't want to, I thought about it. I kind of went back and forth, actually. I have a pretty good sermon, maybe we'll do later, I don't know, about um, Peter and Judas comparing the two and their reactions to how they betrayed and denied Jesus. I don't want to make this whole sermon about Judas. We're going to kind of move on. We want, I want to talk more about what happens next in the Passover. So back to Luke. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So this is all the Judas stuff. All this happens on Thursday. So the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So this is a very tactile act of worship that you would, you would participate in. So you would travel all the way to Jerusalem. Think about that. What's the longest you ever walked in a I don't know. Is that a lot of steps? I have no idea. One time when I was a kid, I went to camp at Catalina Island, you know? And the camp was on one side of the island, and they spent a day, and they marched us over the whole island. And I thought, this is the longest anybody's ever walked. And then the next year, I went to camp, and I sprained my ankle in a basketball tournament, and it was like this big, you know? So then they got me a boat while everybody else walked, and it was fantastic. You know why? Because walking stinks. But... If you're making a trek to Jerusalem, this is what you're doing. You're walking to Jerusalem. And you know where Jerusalem is? It's at the top of a mountain. Okay, so you're hiking. You're going all the way up this mountain to Jerusalem. And the whole time you're hiking, you're singing the last bunch of psalms, like Psalm 118 and all that stuff, right? And there's a whole crowd of people. Like, you know when you leave the Giants game and they just beat the Dodgers, which hasn't happened in a few years, apparently. And um, everybody is like singing and chanting while they're walking down the... Anybody else done this, right? And it's the whole crowd, and they're just excited. Well, that's kind of what was going on. You'd walk up the hill, 
And everybody was excited, not about beating the Dodgers, uh, but about the Lord. And they would be singing these psalms together. And it was this experience. And then you would be there all week, and it was this big party, and then you would go on Thursday or Friday or whatever, you would go to the temple, and you would bring, you'd either buy a lamb there or one you had brought, and you would take that lamb, and you would bring it up to the altar. And I'm guessing the line for this was insane. I'm guessing you would wait all day in the heat, because this is late spring, and you're standing there, and you're there with the lamb, and you bring this lamb up to the altar, and the priest takes the lamb, puts it up on the little thing, and he pulls his head back, and then cuts his neck. All the blood goes down, and it spills everywhere, like really fast. That's the idea. And blood gets all over everything. And this priest is already covered with blood, because this is his 500th lamb of the day. And you have to stand there, and you have to watch the lamb. And the lamb squirms, and he kicks his leg a little bit, and he falls over. I don't know if lambs squeal, but if lambs squeal, it squeals, and it makes some noise. And you have to sit there and watch that in the gut of your, with the gut of your stomach. And you have to think about that, and you have to smell the guts and the blood, and you have to go, wow, God takes sin seriously. Because that's supposed to be me. That's the idea. You're supposed to look at that and go, this lamb is in my place. And then you take the lamb to the other priest, and I don't know what you do to get meat out of a dead body, but that's what they do, and they chop it up, and then they take some of it, and they give you most of it, and you take most of it, and then you go and you celebrate the Passover with your family, and you eat that lamb, and you remember the story, which we're going to read in a minute. And so that day now has come. So Jesus, uh, verse 8, sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. I love he sends two of the inner three. I have no way to prove this, but I'm pretty sure James, the third one, was probably a bad cook. And so Jesus is like, I don't want that guy making the eggs and the Passover lamb, right? So he sends these two. These guys know how to cook. We're going to go. So go prepare the meal, verse 9. So they said to him, where, where will you have us prepare it? Okay, this is interesting. They don't have any details about the Passover that's supposed to happen tonight. Okay, imagine if I invited you all over for Friendsgiving, like in the morning, and you were like, do we have a turkey? I was like, I don't know. Do you have stuffing? Uh, we'll get some stuffing. You know, that's kind of what Jesus was doing. Now, why would Jesus keep his disciples in the dark? I think probably because he didn't want Judas to know where he was going to be until after, right? Judas was there, but he didn't know. He probably walked right up to it. I th I'm guessing. That's what some theologians think too. All right, verse 10. So he said to them, Behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. So they're going to have this thing, this arrangement to meet in the upper room. The question is, is this supernatural or prearranged? And the answer is, I don't know. Could be either, right? If Jesus wants to do this supernaturally, that's a lot easier than raising some guy from the dead. But at the same time, it also could just be he set this up beforehand and, you know, whatever. But the sign is interesting. This is how you're going to know which guy to talk to. He's going to be carrying a jar of water. Well, weren't there a lot of guys carrying jars of water? No, there was not. There was a lot of women carrying jars of water. So if you saw a guy carrying a jar of water, you know that's the guy to talk to. That's how confident Jesus was that only this guy would be doing it. Verse 10, he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, uh, sorry, uh, jump to, follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher, says to you, where's the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. So during the times of the pilgrimage of Passover, 
the city of Jerusalem would grow exponentially. And you have to remember, there's not a lot of hotels in town, right? Like, is next week Salesforce? I thought I saw a billboard. Okay, next week you can't find a hotel in San Francisco. I don't know actually anymore after COVID. Does anybody actually go to it? Anybody know about? But before COVID, the week of Salesforce conference, Dreamforce, you couldn't find a hotel in San Francisco. It's kind of like that, except imagine there's no hotels. So everybody has to find somebody to stay with or, you know, somebody who lived there already. And so a lot of people, like Jesus, what they did, and his disciples, they came to Jerusalem, they hung out in the city during the day, and then they went and camped outside the city at night. And so um, Jesus actually was staying in Bethany for most of this week. And so here, though, they're going to have the Passover inside the city walls because you wouldn't want to, like, travel all the way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and then eat it outside the city. It's like that show in Idiot Abroad where Ricky Gervais sends his friend to all the seven wonders of the world and his friend hates traveling. And the guy goes to Machu Picchu and he hikes like most of the way up there and then he can see Machu Picchu from across the way. And he goes, there, we saw it. And then he left. He didn't like, he was like right there, but he didn't want to go in. He flew all the way there from England. So you, you don't want to be that guy, right? You don't want to go all the way to Jerusalem and then celebrate the Passover outside the city. So they're supposed to do it inside. And so they have the Passover meal in this upper room. Now, we know, let me tell you about this upper room. This was probably John Mark, you know, who wrote the book of Mark. He was Peter's buddy later in life. Um, the guy that Paul, he like deserted Paul at one point, you know. This was John Mark's mom's house. Uh, and we know that from Acts 12. And we're told, um, yeah, so this is, it was probably in the upper part of the city. So the way Jerusalem worked, it was, it was kind of on an incline. The temple was towards the middle to the top of the city. There were people who lived on the other side because you always want to live uphill from the sewage flowing downhill. So the rich people lived up there, you know, so if there was a room, a house with a big enough room to hold this many people, it would have been at the top of the, the, the city. This is probably where they were when Pentecost happened, you know, near the temple at this house. This is probably where they were when Peter busted out of jail. The angel busted Peter out of jail and he ran to where the disciples were gathering. This was like really one of the early church meeting places was this upper room. So, verse 13, they went and they found it just as he had told them, just as Jesus told them, and they prepared the Passover. Probably not as good as my eggs, but I bet it was still pretty good. So they found it just like he said, and then they made dinner. Now, next week we're going to talk about communion, and we're going to talk about the Last Supper and theology. Next week's going to be like a, a dense, what, is, what does communion mean kind of sermon and all that. This week, though, I want to stop and I want to talk about this. From all of eternity... Jesus knew that he was going to come and he was going to die, and he was going to redeem his fallen people. He knew that he was going to head to the cross. And in all of his wisdom, right, in the same wisdom that created the world and his perfect wisdom, he decided the week that I do that, the day that that happens, is going to be Passover. Now, that's not a coincidence. So the question is, why did Jesus do that? Why was it set up like this? To answer that question, I want to jump back, and I want to talk about some stuff in the Old Testament. So this is the part where the Seinfeld patterns weave together at the end, right? The Passover meal with Jesus, and that's the week that he gave his life, is kind of the end of the Seinfeld episode where everything comes together. But if you didn't see the part where Kramer was learning how to golf, or George was lying about being a marine biologist, that story at the end of Seinfeld doesn't make any sense. So we're going to jump back and we're going to read a few of these. We'll talk about a few of these. We'll read a couple of them. The first story, I'm not going to read, but I'll just tell you the story. 
One day, Abraham, you guys know Abraham, right? Uh, he had many sons, which, I mean, he didn't even really, though. Like, you know, he has a couple. I don't get this song at all. Anyway, so Abraham takes his son Isaac, and, and God's like, hey, I want you to go up on top of this mountain. I need you to kill your kid for me. And Abraham's like, dope, sounds like a plan, you know? So he goes up, I'm paraphrasing, he goes up the mountain, and they get up to the top, and, uh, you know, Isaac's like, hey, uh, where's the, the lamb, you know? It's getting fishy, Dad, you know? He's like, hey, uh, can you go lay over there for a second? got to show you something, you know? And he ties him up, and he's about to kill him. Ah, he's got the knife. And then God goes, ah, just kidding. And then um, he doesn't do it. And what happens next? Yeah. Yep. Right over there. Go kill that one. God provided it. Now, you know what mountain that was? Yeah, Mount Moriah. Thousands of years beforehand. This is the mountain where Jerusalem, it's probably not the exact spot, but it's the mountain where Jerusalem was built. Interesting, right? God will provide the sacrifice for you so you don't have to. So then Abraham has a kid. He has a kid. That guy has a couple of kids. And then one of them guys is uh, Joseph. And then they end up in Egypt. I'm paraphrasing the whole. We just taught the book of Genesis, you guys. This is great. Only Luke went this fast is what you're all thinking, right? This guy. So then we jump into Exodus, right? 400 and something years later, the people are there. They're all enslaved. And you know the story, right? Charlton Heston shows up and he's like, let my people go, you know, um, with his NRA stickers and his staff. And it, No, I'm just kidding. And uh, Pharaoh does not want to let the people go. So they have all the plagues, right? You guys know the plagues? What are they? It's like frogs. But it's like not cute frogs, like a lot of frogs, you know. Locusts, the whole thing, right? The river turns to blood. Lice, yeah. Ooh. Boils, ooh, yeah, boils. No thanks, right? Pharaoh doesn't give up. So, Exodus 12. I'm like flipping to the end of the Bible. Pretend your pastor didn't just flip to the end of the Bible and say Exodus 12. All right, uh... <laughs> Okay, Exodus 12. I'm going to read a bunch here. So we're going to read a big chunk of Scripture. So um, he's going to follow this on the screen for us right there, maybe. Yeah, all right, follow along with this. Here we go. It's time to read. We're going to read a lot of verses here. This is the biggest chunk we're going to read. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of nine months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of the tenth of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to the father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each of you can eat, you shall make uh, your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old, you shall take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. The whole family, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the houses uh, in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you should burn. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. 
and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, hence the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and on the first day you shall remove leaven out of, all leaven out of your houses, and if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you should hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe, and then um, he goes on to talk about unleavened bread. I'm going to fast forward a little. Wait, uh. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So you guys know the story, right? People are in Egypt. And God says to them, look, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to send judgment through. And I am going to take the life of the firstborn of everybody in Egypt, except for you guys. And this is how I'll know which ones not to get. You're going to go and you're going to take a lamb. You're going to kill that lamb instead of the firstborn. You're going to take the blood. You're going to spread it on your door. You know, the top and the side and the bottom, the whole thing. And then when the judgment passes through, it'll pass over your house. That's where Passover comes from. And that's what happened. And the next morning, they all woke up. And it's brutal. There's a bunch of dead kids everywhere. And probably grown-ups, too. I don't think it said firstborn kids only devastated the land of Egypt, but the people of Israel were saved from this judgment. And so then the people got up and they left, they went to the desert, and God gave them the law. And one of the things he said in the law was, look, this is what I need you to do. I want you every year to have a meal and to remember that specific day, to remember the day when judgment came through, and it was supposed to come through for you, but it didn't. Because that Passover lamb died. Now, as we move forward in the history of Israel, they did a terrible job at keeping the Passover. Um, in, uh, they, they did occasionally keep it, right? Like when Joshua comes into the promised land, they kept the Passover. You know, we're told right after that happened, um, they kept the Passover. But here's what happened. The people, for the most part, forgot to do it. They didn't do this very well. They didn't celebrate this meal very well. So we see there's times like in Ezra, in the book of Ezra, they celebrate the Passover for the first time in years after the exile. Um, before that, in um, Hezekiah, who was a reforming king, he kind of said to the people, hey, you guys have not been celebrating Passover. So he instituted a Passover for the first time in a long time. And then what would it have been? Like his great-grandson, I think, Josiah. Same thing happened. You know that story? They're like, boy, this temple needs a remodel. We need to put some shiplap and some, you know, the whole thing. I don't know how to remodel. I think it's just shiplap is what you do. And so they're remodeling the temple, and they find the Bible, the Old Testament, the Torah. And they go, wait, what is this? Can you imagine that? What is this? This is pastor. <laughs> this is weird. This is a weird book. I've never seen one of these before. So they start reading it, and they read about the Passover, and Josiah freaks out. Oh, my gosh. It says in here all this bad stuff is going to happen if we don't keep this Passover. So they do, and they keep it. But then a couple generations later, they fall away again, and then the exile. Anyway, so the people didn't really do a very good job. 
Jump to the time of Jesus. They're celebrating the Passover. They're doing a better job. But think about this. If the Exodus happened around 1500-ish BC, there's some dating things. We don't know exactly when it happened. Let's just say the main date people use is around 1500 BC. So let's say that's true. Then by the time that Jesus sat down with the disciples this Passover night, the people had been celebrating Passover on and off, not always faithfully, but kind of on and off, for 1,500 years. Millions of families for thousands of years sat down year after year after year to tell this story, God's judgment and the salvation of God's people. God's grace to a group of slaves who were completely helpless and salvation, right, to those kind of people who couldn't save themselves. And so out of all the days that God, looking at history, could have sovereignly picked, he picked this one for the death of Jesus for a a very important reason, because he was fulfilling that history. All 1,500 of those Passover celebrations, they were looking forward to this weekend, right? To this Thursday, Friday, when Jesus would die, to the Sunday when he would rise. All of the lambs slaughtered, all of the blood spilled, all of the sacrifice, all of that, Hebrews tells us, was a placeholder, right? For this one where Jesus would die. Hebrews says this, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect to those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any uh, consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. And then I'm... uh, Sorry, wait, let me jump to the end. Verse 10. And by that... Uh, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the blood of Jesus Christ once and for all. So what the author of Hebrews says is this. There's nothing wrong with Passover. It was great. It was a gift of God. But the whole point of all this Old Testament stuff was to lead his people to something bigger and to something better. Imagine if I said, hey, do you need a ride home today? And you said, yes. And then we went outside and I was like, look at my new Fisher-Price car. You would say, "Uh, what? Aren't you grown up now? Don't you have time for a real car? Then I would laugh and say, ha ha, I have the best minivan in the world, yes. Right? That's what people do when they ignore, you know, what we want to do is focus on the real, the ultimate fulfillment of this. And I think it's so cool how God did this. He gave his people the Passover in that little form, the Fisher Price car, to teach his people about what he would be doing on this weekend. And so normally at the end of sermons, what we try to do is this. We try to go, so what? Who cares? Right? If there's no so what, who cares? What are we doing here? Right? What does this matter to me? Why does this text matter to me? But this one's a little tough with the so what, who cares? Right? The application, I guess, is what we could call that if we're being fancy. But what do I go home and do about that? Right? There's a verse in, oh, I didn't put this verse in here. I'll read this to you. This is from 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says this, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is a spirit, or who is the spirit. 
Now, what that verse says here at the beginning, and we all with unveiled face, here's how this works. Sin has put a veil over our faces. Now, I'm trying to think of a, it like uh, I should have thought of something. Well, who wears a veil? Brides? But most people don't. Oh, is that for 10 minutes? I don't know. Something, what's something that covers your face and you're like, ooh, I can't see anything? Motorcycle helmets. There we go. If you ever you wore a motorcycle helmet, you know it's pretty hard to see. It's, that's kind of the idea, right? Your, your face is, is obstructed. And so what happens when we come to the Lord and we offer ourselves to him and he saves us and brings us into the family is the veil is peeled from our face and we can see the world more clearly. And the sin that was kind of like muddying our view, it's like dirty glasses, I guess is probably a better illustration, um, uh, or glasses when you have the mask on. You guys with glasses, you know about that? Yeah. So that veil is peeled back a little bit and you can see the Lord a little bit better. And now that your face, right, is unveiled, you see the glory of God. And seeing that glory, it says here, transforms us in the same image from one degree of glory to another. So the more that you see who God is, the more that you see what He really looks like, the way that He acts, the way that He loves, the more that trans- that's how we're transformed into being like Him. We're made in His image. And then what happens it's pretty cool. Another layer is peeled back, right? And it happens again. So the question then, what do I do with this information? Right? Okay, Passover, let, I mean, Jesus organized all of human history to have Passover on the weekend when he was, when he gave his life for our sins. So for me to ask, well, what do we do with that? How do we apply that? Is a little bit misleading. It's kind of like asking, somebody gives you a painting it's absolutely beautiful. Somebody gives you a Monet, let's say, like a real Monet, and you go, what am I supposed to do with this? What do you do with a painting? You look at it, dummy. It's not rocket surgery, <laughs> right? You look at the painting, and then you feel stuff. That's what you're supposed to do with these kind of passages and with these kind of ideas. You're supposed to look at it and then feel stuff. And you think about how... This passage talks about how God's sovereignty doesn't like negate man's responsibility and how big God must be to make that work out. And then you think about how God's plans always come to pass. And you go, hey, that's pretty cool. And then you think about how much planning went into leading up to the cross. And you just peel one more layer off your face and you go, wow, that's pretty cool. And then you sing about it, which is what we're about to do after this. You celebrate it by taking communion. Then you go home and you think about it all week. You look at the painting all week, what we talked about in church. And you let it transform you. And as you read your Bible, you think about, man, the typology and God working out human history this way. And the beauty of that he's the Passover lamb so that I don't have to be. And you keep that in the front of your mind. And as you pray... You think about that. You thank God for it. And it sort of hammers it a little bit deeper. It makes you see a little clearer. As you love and serve the people around you, you think about it. You think, why should I serve this chump? Oh, because God served me in this way by being the Passover lamb. And then what do you do? You get up early next week and you come back and you sit in church 
and then we're going to peel another layer off your face. And you do that for your entire lifetime again. And then all of a sudden, you're not the person you were two years ago. And you don't even know how it happened. It's because you're looking at God. You're looking at the glory of God. And the more you do it, the more layers get peeled off your face. And so that's all. I don't know. That's all I got. Go home and look at the painting.